I think I'm going to stay down here. Is that all right? Can y'all y'all hear me back in the back? All right. Makes me feel a little bit closer to you. So I can come tap you in case you start to nod just a little bit. Um, I just want to thank you guys so much for having us here. Um, as, as was mentioned, as Larry mentioned before, I'm Evie's husband. That's how I'm known when we come to Huntsville. Um, I'm Thurman, and I thank you guys for welcoming my wife, Evie, and her teaching yesterday as well as this morning. And you've also been hosting one of my sons, Joshua, for the last couple of months, working uh, with the, the Lincoln Village Ministry. And so thank you guys. I also have another son, Caleb, who's here, and my mother is here, and my stepfather, Sydney, they're here as well from Selma. And so we thank the Lord that all of them are here. And they've actually been here before. And you all know them better than you know us. Um, but we are thankful. If you have a Bible, please open with me, as you can see, to Psalm 87. Our text is Psalm 87. Now, Psalm 87 is one of those by the sons of Korah. And it's, it's celebrating this place called Zion as the chosen city of God. And Zion is kind of the theological and covenantal name for Jerusalem. But this is a song that's celebrating the city of God. And the theme of the message is taken from verse 3. Glorious things of you are spoken. Glorious things of you are spoken. This is God's word. Let me, let me uh, read God's word and then pray. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there. They say, and of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one was born in her for the, the, the most high himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is God's word. Let's open together with prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your word. It testifies about itself that it's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So, Lord, we pray that through your word you might work in us towards those ends in the time that we have together this morning. Lord, we come and we confess that we don't have the power to even understand the words that we read unless your Holy Spirit illumine our understanding. And so we're asking for that. But, Lord, we're not just asking for that. We also don't just want to be hearers of the word. We also want to be doers of the word. So we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us power to be able to walk in light of these things that you teach us. We pray that we wouldn't what happens here wouldn't stay here, but would be felt in our lives, in our community, in our families, in our homes when we leave this place. And we pray you'd be glorified through all of this. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So uh, I wonder if there's a phrase that you've heard in church circles where people say, we had church today. 
Have you ever had that? You ever heard that? What it means to have church. And I know that means different things in different settings. In some settings, that might mean that you sang all the verses of a mighty fortress is our God. And you quoted the Westminster Confession and you preached from the ESV as I am. Maybe for some others, it meant the choir was swaying and the the music was playing and the preacher was hooping. And at some point in his sermon, the preacher said, Jesus is King of Kings and the Alpha and the Omega, the Lily of the Valley, a doctor in a, and a lawyer in a, uh uh-huh, y'all understand. Uh Uh-huh, you guys have had church before. Now, now I'm a preacher's kid. Uh, My dad was a Methodist pastor, and I have to make a confession that I had a very different definition of what it meant to have church when I was a kid. Um, What it meant to me to have church is if we got out before 1 (laughs) o'clock, then we had church today. But if we got out after 1 o'clock, this East Coast time now, then we didn't have church, and that's because I love football. But but part of the thing, I, I could tell when we were in trouble because I could tell when my father was preaching and he would start feeling it and, and he'd start quoting songs. If he started doing that, I'm like, oh, Lord, we're going to be here till 130 because he'd be like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I knew, here we go. I'm going to miss part of the game. I'm going to miss part of the game. He'd say, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. I'd be like, I'm full. I just want to go home now. But he would keep going. But uh, as you, what's your name? You all right? (laughs) I made you laugh. I'm glad you're with me. That's good. Patience. I wanted to quote you because when you were talking earlier about the hymns, that was like when I became an adult and then came to know Christ, I started to understand. Those hymns that we used to sing when we were kids, when we were y'all's age. And I didn't know what they were talking about then, but now I understand they would come to mind. And there was a hymn, I wonder if you've heard it. It says, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Have you ever heard that title? Well, what I came to find out later is that came from this song. It was written by John Newton, the same guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And he wrote that song, Glorious Things, of thee are spoken. And I I remember that title, and I always thought that that was talking about God. Right? Glorious things are spoken of God because he is glorious. But that's not actually what the song is talking about. You know who it's talking about? It's talking about the people of God. It's talking about what it calls the city of God. Let me me read from the song, because I don't know that one by heart. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. The other verse I read, it says, on the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. Glorious things of thee are spoken, but it's talking about the city of God. This multinational, we see in this song, multi-ethnic, multi-everything, people of God. That is what this psalm is celebrating. Now, what would this psalm have meant to the first audience? The original audience would have been God's people in exile. 
And for them, as they're hearing this psalm, it would have given them a couple things. One, in terms of the future, it would have given them hope to say, you know what? Even though we have been through all that we've been through, God hadn't forgotten about us. God still has us in mind. God still has a plan for us. Now, it might have been a surprise to them when they get into the psalm and they hear who it is he's talking about in the passage. But they would have been encouraged. What about the New Testament believers as they're reading this psalm? They would have seen that this is kind of an already not yet seen. That's looking forward to what we read in Revelation 5. That beautiful picture of people worshiping around the throne from every tribe and language and people and nation. Not worshiping themselves. Not saying, look at us, look how diverse we are. But worshiping the Lamb and giving praise and glory to Him. But then they they would also see in the present that it's really hard to work this out on earth as it is in heaven in the present. Well, what about us here in 2018, living in the midst of a world and a nation that is so divided in many ways, that is so polarized, that is so sectarian, that is so divided, that thinks so differently from one another. And, And listen, that's not just true in the world and in our country. If we're really honest, we also see the same thing within the church. How does this help us? What does this psalm have to say to help us? To remind us that glorious things are spoken about the city of God, the people of God. It's going to show us three things. Do all Alex's sermons have three points? That mine, he don't, See, he's better than me. My, I need more creativity. Mine come out that way. But I, we want to look at three things that come out from this psalm. That this passage tells us about the city of God and why it's so glorious. Because that's going to help us walk in light of who we're called to be. The first thing that we see in the psalm is that this city is founded by God. Any of you builders in here? How many, how many builders know that what's really important is the what? The foundation. And that's the kind of language that he's using here in this passage. It's describing a creating, an originating, a beginning of the building. And it's also talking about ownership as well. That's here in this in this building that he founded. And it's saying here in that first verse. On the holy mount. What is it that makes it holy? Because God is there. And it means he set it apart for himself. On the holy mount stands the city that he founded. It started, originated, continues and will be sustained. Because of the will and power of almighty God. Now. What difference does that make for us? That this city is founded by God. There's a verse in um, Isaiah 14. Listen to this. This is an oracle towards Philistia, who was one of the enemies, who's actually one of the groups named in this song. But what it says here is, what will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion. And then here's the effect. It says, and heard the afflicted of his people find refuge. Do you know that old song? I can't remember who wrote it, but it says, where do I go when the storms of life are threatening? Where do I turn to when when the winds of sorrows blow? Is there a refuge in the time of tribulation? I go to the rock because I know he's able. I go to the rock. So what difference does it make that it's founded by God that you find a refuge in that? But what else, what else difference does it make? It also gives us a basis for stepping out in faith. 
and continuing to walk in faith. What do I mean? We use Old Testament Abraham as an example. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Chapter 11, verse 8. It says, describing Abraham's life by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And then, listen to this. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Maybe some of you come and you feel like, you know, God has called me to this. God has put this ministry or this place in my heart. But I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know how he's going to work it out. I don't know what he's going to do. Well, you're in good company. Because that was Abraham's story. But what was he focused on in the midst of that? It tells us in the verse, the next verse. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so that foundation allows you to step out and to continue in faith, even though you don't know how it's going to turn out. He didn't tell Abraham where he was going. He didn't tell him how it was going to turn out. He says, go to the place that I'm going to show you later on. But who did his faith have to be in? Not in the place, but in the God who called him to that place. And ours is the same. Lastly, one other implication The idea that this city has been founded by God, it gives us a different perspective on our suffering and on our trials. Let me illustrate what I mean. I heard a story of a a lumberjack who was in a forest and they're chopping down the the trees in that that forest. And he notices in one of the trees that he's going to chop down, there's a bird that comes and starts to build the nest right in one of those trees that's going to come down. And so he takes his axe and turns it around on the the, the, the smooth side and bangs on the tree to get the bird not to build the nest there. So the bird is mad, gets an attitude, but leaves and flies to another tree. And so he sees because that's another one that's going to come down. And so he goes and does the same thing. He bangs on that tree to get the bird to move. And then finally what the bird does is he goes and he starts to build his nest on the rock. What happened in the story? The lumberjack recognized that the bird at first was trying to build his foundation in something that was going to come down. But when he built his foundation on the rock, something that was going to last, he left him alone and said, that's where you need to be. Why do I bring that up? Because for many of us, I wonder, in the midst of the struggle and pain and and suffering and whatever it is you're going through in your life right now, you feel like God is banging up against your tree. And maybe it's the evil one, you you say, who came to steal and kill and destroy. And that's right. But I want to pose another question. Could it be that behind that pain and behind that struggle and behind that banging on your tree is a loving God who wants you to build your foundation on a rock? And so think of that place of pain for you. Could it be that God is shaking your tree? Because he wants you to build your foundation in the right place. The fact that it's founded by God gives us a different perspective, even on the the places where we hurt. To be able to say, God, I don't understand exactly what you're doing, but I know that you're good and that I can trust you. And maybe you're showing me I'm building my foundation in the wrong place. So first thing we see is that city 
is founded by God. Secondly, we see not only that, not only is the city founded by God, but the city is also loved by God. See in verse 2, it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. This is a place that the Lord loves. Why? Not because of anything in them, but because of what's in him. Husbands think if your wife comes to you and say, hey, I want to know why you love me. And maybe you say, well, hey, because you you're a great cook. Or because you're, you're fine. You know, that's why. Or, you know, you're great with the kids or, or whatever. You might say all, and all those things might be true. That's fine. But all those things are external. Right? They could change. But what she really needs to hear is that you love me because you love me. You love me just for who I am. And that's in essence what Almighty God says about his people. I'll read you something. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He's writing about the people of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He loves you because he loves you. Now, what's so special about the gates of Zion as it has here? Well, it's poetic language to describe the place of worship and the place of presence of Almighty God. And ultimately what it does, it points us to the one who is the gate of Jerusalem. The one who is the final temple. Who is the great high priest. Who is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus Christ. But what are the implications for us to know that we're loved by God? Well, the first one is to know that we're loved by God. Do you know, people of God, that we are loved by God? In Jesus' high priestly prayer, do you remember that in John chapter 17? He's praying for the unity of his people. And he says, Father, I want the world to know that you sent me. And then he prays for a couple things in order to tell the world that he sent him. I, I want the world to know that I have called them to be one and that you love them even as you love me. That you love them even as you love me. Well, how does God the Father love God the Son? Well, think about, do you remember in that scene at Jesus' baptism, what are the words that come down from heaven? Behold, this is my beloved Son. With Him, I'm well pleased. So, okay, what does that mean for us? In Jesus Christ, it means Almighty God looks at you and says, you're my beloved Son. You're my beloved daughter. In you, I'm well pleased. How many of us long to hear those words from somebody whose opinion matters? Well, here you have one whose opinion matters the most, more than any in all creation, saying, you're my beloved child through Jesus Christ. But please hear me. He doesn't just say that about us individually. He says that about us collectively as the body of Christ, as the church. Think about that passage in Ephesians 5 
where Paul is talking to husbands and he uses the love of Christ for the church as an example. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he describes how he loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such things that she might be holy and without blemish. That's how he cares about the church. The implication is so must we care about the church. Now, I know that as we think about being a part of the church, that glorious things are not always spoken about us. Right? And honestly, if you think about it, it has to do with Jesus either way. What do I mean? Sometimes glorious things are not spoken about us because we're living like Jesus. And that's what he told us. He says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you for living like me. And that's okay. But where we run into the problem is when glorious things are are not spoken of us because we're not living like Jesus. That's the part where we need to clean it up and begin to live like him. We want glorious things to be spoken of us because we're living like Jesus Christ. I remember, um, I guess it's five or six years ago, there was a, a video that was popular on YouTube. And it, and it said, um, I love Christ, but I don't like the church. And a lot of people have that. Maybe some of you have been hurt. You have church hurt, right? And, and I'm sorry, as a pastor, I, I, I'm sorry of that. And I ask your forgiveness for that. That is real. But at the same time, don't let, don't let that cause you to hate the bride of Christ. Because that's still his bride. As messed up as we might be, we're still his bride that he loves and that he's working on cleansing. And so love him and love his bride. Don't give up on the church because you're called to be a part of it. Don't say it's their thing, it's our thing. And we're loved by God. So lastly, let's go to the last thing. Not only do we see here that the city of God is founded by God, Not only is it loved by God, but lastly, we see is that it's chosen by God. It's chosen by almighty God. What do I mean? Well, first in verse four, it says among those who know me. And this is talking about a relational, worshipful knowledge of almighty God, not just knowing facts about God, not just knowing theology, but knowing God. And that's wonderful. We might expect that city of God and the people of God to be filled with people who know God and love him, right? But what would have been shocking is when he begins to describe the list of the people included of those who love God. Because it says here, among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. You know what he means by Rahab there? It's Egypt. The first and one of the greatest enemies of the people of Israel, the one that had enslaved them, For 400 years, he's saying, they're going to be some of my people. And then Babylon, that's the the last great enemy, the one that takes them and puts them in exile. He says, guess what? When you look at the end, they're going to be among my people too. And then look, behold, Philistia, the Philistines, 
right? You're reading through 1 Samuel, all through there. They're fighting with the Philistines all the time. Goliath, that David kills, is a Philistine. There's all this fight, the Hatfields and the McCoys, you can say. The Klingons and the Star Trek people, however you want to hold. And yet here they are. Here they are. And then Tyre, those are, that's a city of Canaanites. And then Cush, or Ethiopia, is another name for that. In their minds, that was the furthest ends of the earth. And what God is saying here is all these are going to be among my people. This is representative of all the Gentile nations who are going to be a part of the people of God. Whatever place you come from, your people are included in that. In fact, if you look over in 86, I think this is why he put 87 right next to 86. Because Psalm 86 verse 9, it says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And that's what you see in Psalm 87. Now, the people reading that originally, what would they have said? When they heard that, they'd be like, what? Who? Them? No. Not those people. This must be something for the sons of Korah. You know, they wrote a few psalms. They're like one-hit wonders or something. They're not like David. But you have to look. And it's all throughout the whole scripture. Because you go all the way back. Genesis 12. In that call to Abraham, what does God say to him? He says, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make your name great. And you will be a blessing to all nations. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. You keep on reading Isaiah 49 when he's talking about the exiles he's going to bring home. He says, you know what? It's too small a thing for me just to save y'all. But I also want y'all to be a light to the Gentiles so I might be glorified. In Isaiah 56, you remember that passage? Jesus quotes it because he says, my house is going to be what kind? A house of prayer for all nations. That's Old Testament. What about New Testament? Think about the Great Commission that we all quote and we know. Go and make disciples of all nations, not just people like yourself. When he tells them in Acts 1, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But not just there. Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you see that even played out in Acts 2. And then you come to Ephesians 3. Paul says this is this great mystery. That is going to bring God glory because it's going to show the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God for all time. And then you look in the passage in Revelation 5 and 7 and 11 and 14 of those scenes around the throne. Of people from every tribe and language and nation. You know, one of the implications of that is God's not colorblind. How did John in his vision, how do he know that there are people from every tribe and language? And nation. Did they have on name tags of where they're from? How did he know? Because he saw in the vision. And it wasn't bringing glory to their individual cultures or glory to their diversity. It was giving glory and honor to Almighty God who brought them together. What are they singing about in Revelation? Salvation belongs to the Lamb. It's all right to say amen. Do I need to go get the sign out of Pastor Alex's office and hold it up? Anyway, you get the point. 
Well, the question is, how do you become a part of this people? Well, he, he gives a clue. I don't know if you caught this, but three times. That tells you that it's important. And verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6 says the same thing. This one was born there. That one was born there. This one and that one were born in her. Three times it says that. What is it telling you? That God is going to bring something about by his grace where these people that were formerly enemies of God will be born again. And they will be treated not just like proselytes, not just like citizens who live in the same place, but they're going to be adopted as his children and receive the full rights of heirs of Almighty God. Those of you, if you were in um, my wife's class this morning, she talked about our family a little bit. We have four kids, not just two. Um, two of them are here. Our oldest two kids are in different places. Um, but our oldest two kids are actually adopted. And, and one of the most powerful things I've ever seen is uh, the adoption ceremony in the courthouse. And I don't know if it's the same way in Alabama, but the way it was in Maryland was really, it was amazing. It was an amazing picture of the love of God, I, I feel like. Now, I was um, a youth pastor for many years before I was a, a pastor. And I had been to that courthouse in Baltimore with my kids, who had, not my, my biological kids, I'm just before I had kids, because they had gotten in trouble. And so I had been to that courthouse when kids had gotten arrested for stealing cars and doing just other crazy stuff. And when, <laughs> every time I've been to that courthouse before, when I saw the judges, they were mean and nasty and, and, and rightfully so, because they were trying to scare the mess, literally, out of these kids. But when we went to the courthouse for the adoption, it was amazingly different. Well, one, it was in a part of the courthouse I had never been before in my life. I didn't know that part even existed. And when you go in there, you look up to the front and it's filled with people with kids and their parents and people taking pictures and all these things. And the judges are up the front and I noticed they're smiling. I had never seen judges smile before. Of all the times I've been to court, they are smiling. They're so excited. And each family that comes up, they're talking to the kids and they're talking to the parents. And they say, do you understand how great this is and what's happening? And then even afterwards, this blew me away, is they have a, a, a bench outside where the judges come out and they they pose for pictures with the families when they come out. I'm like, where am I? This is amazing. But here's the thing that, that struck me the most is uh, the birth certificate. And uh, and the way a birth certificate worked in Maryland is uh, is they put the child's name and the weight and where they're where they're born and all of that. And they put the parent's name. And they put the age that you are when the kids are born. And so what I was thinking, that when, our, when our kids were adopted, they redid their birth certificates. And I thought what they would do is they would put our name and the address and all that, but I thought they would put our age that we were when the kids were adopted. But that's not what they did. When you look at the birth certificate, it has our names. And it has the age we were, parents, when the kids were born. As if to say, in the mind of Almighty God, <laughs> this is always what he had planned. And I don't know if, if that was their intention. But that's what came out to us. That in his mind, it, that's always what it was. That was what he ordained. 
And that same thing, brothers and sisters, is true of you. And it's true of those brothers and sisters that are part of the body of Christ who are your natural enemies. As it says in this passage. Now, as we close up, how do we apply that? What do we do with all of that? Well, oh, I forgot something. Verse 7. I forgot the end. What, how do they respond to all this good news? The way that you should. Through celebration. Because that's what verse 7 is depicting. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs. And that means all my, my foundations. All my fountains. All my sources of life and blessing are where? In you. I, one of the images I had in mind. Can you Have you ever seen an HBCU marching band? And just picture them. Picture the, the HBCU band with the people behind and the drums going, are the musicians, oh, they're gone. Oh, I had them play. But picture them with the march, with the guy up front, the, the drum major leading the parade and all the people behind them. And they're dancing and singing. And I don't know what they're saying, but maybe they're saying like, Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. Maybe some of them are saying, I've got a river of life that's flowing out of me. It makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. It opens prison doors and set the captives free. I've got a river of life coming out of me. Can you picture that parade? Well, you're a part of that. Because of the joy. It comes from knowing the Lord. I don't know your background, but no matter what it is, you know what? You have a but God testimony. I don't care if you grew up in the church or you grew up in a crack house. You got the same testimony. Because you used to be dead, but God made you alive. You used to be an object of God's wrath, but God has made you an object of God's mercy. You used to be enslaved, but God has set you free, no matter what your background is. And so that's worth celebrating. That's worth amening somebody. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do? How do we apply that? First of all, Maybe some of you have come here today and you're not yet a citizen of that city. Well, he invites you to come. He invites you to be born again. In the Bible, what does he say? He says, it says, God so loved the world. And you can put your name in that and say, he so loved you that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. And you know what the Bible says? It says, yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're here today and you came and you weren't in that city, you can be in that city today by receiving him, Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, not just for sins in general, but for your sins. And he rose from the dead so that you, might have everlasting life through faith in Him and Him alone. And so come to Him. Another application is to heed that call to go and make disciples of all nations, including all nations here, right among us. And I know there's lots of ways that you're already working on doing that here in our midst. I thank you for including our family in that. But you say, I, I don't see how in the world God could use me. What do I have to offer? Listen, if you feel discouraged, just read Jonah. Because look, here's a dude 
that didn't want to talk to the people ended up getting swallowed by a fish and spit out on the ground and preached the worst sermon in all the Bible to people that he hated and God brought about a revival. And so, and so if God could use him, how could you say he's not going to use you? If God could use me, how can you say he's not going to use you? And then lastly, know that we actually have a biblical case. I love what you're doing here at the Village Church. But know that we have a biblical basis for seeking biblical reconciliation. And that speaks to people in our society who want diversity without God. To say, no, it only God, God's the one who does it. It's his idea. Even before Martin Luther King had a dream, it was in the mind and plan of God. And you can't do it without him. But then it also speaks to people who want God without the diversity. Who, when you begin to talk about these things, begin to throw around terms and say, oh, this is cultural mandate. This is identity politics. This is, uh, what's the thing, the critical race theory and all these different things. That any time you begin to talk about biblical reconciliation, they throw those terms up and say, you're moving away from the gospel. No, you say to them, you're moving away from the Bible. Because it's all through there. And that's how the, the, the gospel is worked out in this place, in that context. And so the Bible gives us a basis to speak to both. Now, in closing, and I'm really going to close. Right, really? <laughs> Right, because you know the preacher will say that, and 15 minutes later, he's still closing. <laughs> and you're like, how many doors he got on this message? Lord, I must get... But I'm really, I'm really going to close. I know, because we've been doing the same thing, is that this is tiring, isn't it? And it's exhausting. And there's times where you hurt each other. You get weary. You get misunderstood. There's a lot of times you feel like... And it seems like doing something else would be a whole lot easier. How are you going to get the strength to keep going then? How are you going to get the strength to, to not give up? How are you going to get the strength to keep on going and keep on fighting, even though you don't feel like it anymore? You get it from God. But how, how so? How does he work that? Well, I just want to close looking at a passage in Hebrews 12. And this is, I think, the writer is writing in light of Psalm 87. And here's what he says. He's pointing us. He's pointing them and pointing us to our source of strength and power to keep on doing this. He says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. He was talking about that before. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better worth than the blood of Abel. Do you remember the blood of Abel? In Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel, those famous words, he says, God says to Cain, Cain, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And what does God say? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
What did he mean by that? That blood was crying out for justice. It was crying out for judgment. But the writer here says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How is that so? Because the blood of Jesus cries out not just for justice. It cries out that justice has been satisfied. It cries out for forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. It cries out, and it's a bitter word, than the blood of Abel. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood that can take a former slave ship owner, John Newton, and inspire him to write this hymn and to sing of the glorious things that are spoken of this city that's made up of people like me and made up of people that I used to hate and whose lives I used to destroy. Now we're all in the same family. Only the amazing grace of God can do that. And that's all that will sustain you for this work. We must return to it again and again. But I say to you today, brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged because glorious things of you are spoken. We have been founded by God. We've been loved by God. And we've been chosen by Almighty God. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, where else shall we go? For only you have the words of life. And so we thank you for what you teach us through your word. Help us to live this out. Thank you for the village church and the salt and light that it is in this Lincoln community. We pray that you continue to sustain these brothers and sisters and encourage them in this great work. Let them return again and again, not just to the vision that you've given them, but to the God who is the source of power to carry that vision out. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.